Today is our last day talking about this series, Who I Am, where we're looking at the character and nature of God, what he's like, and what that means for us as image bearers of God, and what we should be like knowing what our God is like. And this is a very foundational series. Really, this is fundamental to everything else that I'm ever going to talk about here. And really, this is the most important series that I could have. And even though it's ending today, it's really never going to end because our life is all about loving and glorifying God. It's all about God. And that pours into our love of others. And that's why in our mission, we are to love God, serve others, and share Jesus. That's what we're all about. And loving God is the first part of that. It's the foundation. It's the bedrock ground zero for what it means to be a Christian. So that's, that's why we're starting here. And now that it's socially acceptable to talk about Christmas since it's past Thanksgiving, and I'm not a crazy person that does it before then, um, I want to share with you a couple stories of me getting gifts growing up. So whenever you're younger, and maybe still today, some of you still may be this way, one of the things you look forward to the most about Christmas is getting presents, right? That one thing that you're looking forward to getting so much, it's like, oh, I might finally be able to get this for Christmas. I had a few of those throughout my life. One of the earliest ones I remember was a snowboard. I wanted so bad. I thought my life wouldn't be complete unless I got this wonderful Walmart 3000 snowboard. And I was asking so hard for it. And then boom, here it is in Christmas. And I, I get what I've been asking for. And I'm like, oh yeah, my life's really going to start to be exciting now. So I wait for the first snow of the year and I go into my backyard and granted, I went to the biggest hill in my backyard, but it's not really much of a hill at all. I mean, it's not a great incline. So I strap on my snowboard and I'm here. I'm like, all right, here we go. My life begins now and I lean forward and nothing happens and I'm just like okay so then I start kind of like doing that jerk all the way down the hill and I, I make it to the bottom of the hill and I didn't really do much snowboarding at all and I was just like wow this is it <laughs> this, is, this is what I was so excited for and then I proceeded to never touch that snowboard again <laughs> another instance was whenever I was younger uh, I got a GoPro and I was like, oh, this is the coolest thing in the world. I'm going to film myself doing all this awesome stuff. And then I, I go into my room and I, and I try it and I, I look back at the, the footage and I even do slow motion on it. And I'm just like, yeah, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be either. <laughs> and then I proceeded to never touch that again. So sorry, mom and dad, for that investment. Um, but uh, what's funny is I still have that GoPro, so it's buried somewhere in a box. I don't know. But if there's ever a day where I'm like, feeling the itch to really be adventurous, I'll pull it back out. But I was doing something and it had this sort of mindset that I think a lot of us do when it comes to gifts. I was working with the belief that, oh, once I get this one thing, my life is finally going to be fulfilled. Oh, if I could just get that job, then everything in my life would change. If I just had that one cosmetic surgery, then I would finally feel comfortable in my skin. If I could just find that significant other, then finally my life would feel whole or complete. All of us have some things, I think, in our life that we have 
started out with this sentence, if I could just. We oftentimes think that there is just that one thing that's going to lead to fulfillment once we get it. And time and time again, it might give us momentary happiness, but it's going to leave us unfulfilled. And this is what's led the writer of Ecclesiastes to say that everything is meaningless. Everything is a chasing after the wind. It's been pretty windy today. You know how hard it is to to chase and catch wind, right? Nothing really has a purpose, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes, because life just follows this same cycle time and again. You live, you enjoy some moments of life, you struggle in more moments of life, and then you die. And then time goes on and you're completely forgotten. And that's it. And this is what's led many people, myself included, to get this pit in our stomach. Whenever we really start to think about, there is going to be a day when I breathe my last breath. Whenever we really start to think about how short life is, you can kind of start thinking this way. And maybe another crisis question is that feeling of despair whenever we're questioning our purpose and our worth. Do I really have much of a place in life right now? What is my life for? Who is my life for? These sorts of questions have led many psychologists and sociologists to argue that this is why humans have created so many religions throughout time. Because it's been an answer to some of these hard topics, an answer to some of these hard questions. People have really been trying to find an answer to make sense of their reality. And really, that's what, what sociologists would argue what religion and what different conceptions of God really are. People need an answer to why the world is the way that it is. And so what they did was construct gods to make sense of it. And really what they were doing was creating gods in their own image and likeness. Let's take, for example, in the Greek pantheon, a god like Zeus. Zeus was one that really idealized, if you look at his character, idealized Greco-Roman values. He was somebody that always did his duty. He was somebody that cared about justice, although justice looked more like vengeance for him. He simultaneously would sleep around with a bunch of people. He was very violent and cruel and was depicted as having a very short temper. So what was happening in these situations is knowing that your chief God has a character like that, knowing that he acts like that, it gives more meaning and purpose to me acting like that, to me being like that God. If you look at the Egyptian pantheon, a God like Ra, if we examined Ra's nature and abilities, we can see that it would make total sense in a desert society like Egypt to make your chief God the God of the sun, the thing that is simultaneously scorching you, but also providing crops for you. How much more meaning is there, instead of saying everything's just natural, and saying that our God is providing us with this food? Also, it gives way more significance to the night, thinking of Ra being the God of the sun. Because what happens, it's not just the earth rotating, right? What happens is Ra goes into the underworld and defeats his enemies and comes up victorious in the east every morning. There's more meaning that's given to life through the conception of gods. 
And with these two examples, you can begin to see how humans create gods to make sense of their worlds and give lives, their own lives, more purpose. And even after all these years later, through the Enlightenment and through secularism, we still do the same things. Nothing has changed. We still make gods according to our own understanding and our own values. As David Foster Wallace, the famous author, says, and in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace, which makes this quote even more interesting, is David Foster Wallace was an agnostic. He didn't have any belief system. He didn't have any faith in anything supernatural whatsoever. But he realized that maybe one of the values, one of the merits to some sort of spiritual belief, some belief in a God is that that might be the only thing that doesn't leave you dissatisfied. Maybe he's experienced that these other things that he was chasing did not ultimately fulfill him. And psychologists really agree with this notion. Many argue that practicing a religion, I'm not saying people who just give lip service to it, but people who actively partake in the rituals of a certain religion have a lot of benefits to their life. For example, it increases one's happiness. It increases your health and longevity. It reduces anxiety, particularly about death and illness and hard things in life. It reduces feelings of loneliness. It reduces the grief that you have, and it reduces violent tendencies. Like even in the study of our brains, we can see that there is benefit to pursuing something other than what we see in this world. And this just makes me think about what Augustine said. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If we don't ever realize this, church, if we don't realize that the only place for true contentment is in God, we will forever be dissatisfied with life. What or who we worship will determine the level of fulfillment that we're going to have in life, and it's going to shape so much about who we are. So we know that worshiping something spiritual or some, having some belief system helps our fulfillment and gives us purpose, but what makes specifically our God worth worshiping? What makes our God distinct from these other gods that we've talked about so far this morning? Whenever I was at Lipscomb this last year, one of the units that I covered was the attributes of God. And I really wanted to do this justice because y'all know how important I think this topic is. And I was really having a hard time, I'll be honest, at Lipscomb. I was not trained to be in education, so having students own their own learning, like that was something that was more 
challenging for me. I had what I would consider one of two projects that I thought was like, oh yes, this is what I was hoping would happen. Uh, the rest, they may have been okay. But uh, one of them was this project. I realized that I had a lot of athletes in my class and they, they loved competition. They loved seeing who was better at something. So what we did was we had a draft of attributes of God and what they were supposed to do was create the best God of the universe using only four attributes of our God. And so that means they had a lot of limitations, right? And they were pitching to a panel of judges why they think they crafted the best God. On the surface, that might sound like it's a, making an idol. I promise you it's not. Uh, the result of it was really, really beautiful. So there were some gods that had a very unique set of attributes. Some had wisdom, empathy, kindness, and love. Well, if you have a God with only those four attributes, what you have is just a good person. Like you have maybe a good therapist. Woohoo! <laughs> but you wouldn't be able to actually do anything about it, right? There's no power, there's no ability to capitalize on that heart. Another group had something like omnipotence, omnipresence, justice, and anger. It's like, whew, if you have a God with only those four attributes, I mean, you're looking at Zeus, right? You're looking at somebody who's really angry and vengeful and just wanting nothing but violence, right? And what they were realizing through this project, primarily from the weaknesses of their gods, was that our God is only God. If he is all of these attributes together. Play this little exercise with me for a second. Could you imagine if God removed, especially one of his key attributes, like what that would do to God? For example, if we said God was no longer perfectly loving or gracious, that would be pretty terrible, right? The moment we would make a mistake, we would be judged and condemned and that's it. If you remove God's justice, then that means that evil would forever go unchecked. If you removed God's all power, then that means he would not be able to change a thing even if he wanted to. If you remove God's perfect wisdom, then that means he's gonna be like me and you and having no idea what to do next. He probably would be pacing the throne of heaven at that point, right? Because he wouldn't know what to do or how to execute his plan right. God is not God unless he is all of these things combined. And whenever you combine all of these together, really what you get is God's holiness. God's holiness, if you boil it down, it really just means that God is completely and utterly unique. There is nothing else in all of creation that is made of the same stuff that God is. And sometimes I just think of God's holiness as being synonymous with godness like just something absolutely slathered with God. That is God's holiness. But since God is one who is so unique and incomparable to anything else in creation, this is what makes him worthy of worship. This is what makes him special. And if you look at people's reaction to experiencing the full holiness of God in scripture, it's normally always the same response. It's normally always people falling to their knees in awestruck terror because they are beholding something so powerful, something unlike they've ever experienced. And once they see that, there's no turning anywhere else. Once we get a glimpse of God's holiness, 
We don't have to look anywhere else, church. There is no one higher. There is no one better. Our God alone is holy. And if you compare our God to the gods of this world, what you're going to see is there is truly no one like our God. Our God created this world intentionally out of loving community for loving community. He didn't create this world as an accident or in conflict with the other gods or out of violence. It was out of love. Our God gives all humans dignity, equality, and power, and he knows us by name. We are not just another disposable part. We're not just a pawn in God's game. We are significant. Our God wants to be known and have relationship with us as seen by him becoming fully human and dying a criminal's death for our freedom. He is not on a lazy boy and apathetic about what's going on in this world. He cares about it. Our God stoops down to meet people and cultures where they are in ways that make sense to them. He doesn't make them wander aimlessly without direction. Our God is so multifaceted that even 8 billion people in the world are not enough to capture the full glory of God. Because our God is not the God of one nation or one people. He is the God of all nations and all people. Our God is gracious and grants salvation based upon what he's done and his character, not based upon what we've done, where every other religion in existence has some form of karma, where the only way that you get a better afterlife is by doing enough good works. Our God is always with us through his spirit and patiently endures through our sinfulness. He doesn't abandon us whenever he's angry with us or whenever his feelings are hurt or whenever he just feels like it. Our God alone is holy and there is no one like him. The gods of our invention cannot stand before the God who's beyond comprehension. There is a hole in our hearts right now, church, that only God's holiness can fill. In the book of Ezekiel, there's this really powerful vision that Ezekiel, the, the prophet of God, had of the temple. And if you know anything about the temple, you know that it's the manifestation of God's holiness here on earth. And he has this beautiful vision of a river flowing from the temple and giving life to everything that it touches. Read this in Ezekiel 47. It says, he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. If you know anything about the Dead Sea, you know it is a dead sea. There's nothing alive in it. It is so thick with minerals that no life can flourish in that water. So he has this vision where this river is coming into the Dead Sea and turning that salty water into fresh water so that life can exist. And then in verse 9 it says, Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. 
So he has this, this, such a beautiful vision of water flowing from the sanctuary or the temple or the holy place of God and giving life to everything it touches. And then the leaves of these trees are providing healing for the world. He has this beautiful vision of death coming into life. God's holiness leading to transformation. And what's cool is we get a very similar picture on the very last page of scripture. So Revelation 22, verse 1 through 3, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God, or the holy place of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And leaves, and the leaves of the tree are of the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Does that all sound familiar? Sounds like what we just talked about, right? What we just read in Ezekiel. This is a continuation of that thought from Ezekiel. And though in many places in God, we see God's holiness being something dangerous, here what we see, this river stemming from God's holiness, it's not a danger, but it's transformative. It's life-giving. And you know where we really see this, that God's holiness is transformative? Jesus. Jesus demonstrates this very clearly. Jesus was God's dwelling place on earth while he was here. And he was constantly using his holiness to bring life and healing into other people's lives. In John 4, Jesus, he talks with the Samaritan woman and asks her for a drink. She refuses because Jews and Samaritans were enemies. Like they weren't even supposed to associate with each other, not even give each other the time of day. And he mentions that he has this living water. Something that would make her no longer thirst again. And she was kind of confused by this. If we read in verse 13 of John 4, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water from the well, specifically, is what it's talking about, so not the water that Jesus is referring to, so the well that she is drawing from, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. While we as people all have wells that we continuously come back to, we have places that we think are going to bring fulfillment to us and never fully satisfy us. Jesus is offering us something that will make us never thirst again, that will make us never want to look anywhere else. And we all have wells, right? We all have things that we turn to to satisfy us. And then either that well that we keep going to runs dry or we need to find a new well. Find something else that's going to maybe scratch that itch of fulfillment that we're missing in our lives. And maybe you're in that situation right now. Maybe you feel like the well that you've kept going to has dried up. Maybe you feel super alone. Maybe you feel like you don't have any deep friendships or quality community right now in your life. Maybe you question whether your life means anything. Maybe you question whether the career path you chose is actually significant in making a difference in this world. Maybe you question whether or not you're ever going to be able to fully recover from that one bad decision you made a long time ago. Whatever it is, maybe you feel like your life is falling apart. And maybe on the flip side, maybe you have everything going right for you. 
at least on paper, right? You, you have the dream. You have the, the beautiful spouse. You have the nice house. You have the nice car. You have 2.5 kids or whatever the American dream is. <clears throat> but you're realizing that that is not fulfilling you. Maybe you just got that promotion. Maybe you got that coveted job. And then on the other side of it, you're like, huh, still didn't really scratch what I was thinking it would. Maybe you're questioning after you just recently married somebody, you were thinking your life was going to feel whole and complete afterwards, but you still feel like you're missing something. Maybe your parents, or your parents, your kids just left to college. And that was something that you found so much identity and purpose in, but now that they're gone, what do you do? Even in the good things in life, even whenever life seems to be going great, it still doesn't satisfy. But to you who are in this dry wasteland, hear this. Jesus says that he is offering living water that satisfies your soul. You don't have to look for the next well anymore. Even though it may not feel like it in that moment, or even though you don't see it whenever you're pursuing Jesus, Jesus is the only thing that is going to satisfy your soul. Everything else will leave you feeling empty. Our heart is aching for something holy to fill it. And the truth is, there only is one being who is holy. So like Ezekiel and Revelation, in Jesus you see a stream flowing from the holy place of God and giving life to everything it touches. And what's really fascinating is whenever we take a second and think about ourselves in this equation, where is the temple of God now? It's in us, right? God's spirit, God's presence is dwelling within us. And God's spirit is holy and makes us holy. So with that in mind, hear these words in John 7. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. We who have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us have God's holiness in us. And from us, through the Spirit, streams of living water flow. As Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, went through the world, proclaiming the good news, bringing life into death, bringing healing into sickness, reversing the curse itself, we who are God's temple do the same. And this isn't an optional thing. We must be a people who are holy as God is holy. As image bearers of God being sanctified more and more into the likeness of Jesus, we must partner with God in letting the streams of living water flow to a dying and desolate world. Because church, right now, this world is hopeless. They are looking for something to scratch this itch of fulfillment in their life, and they're never going to find it. And they're also helpless. They don't know where to turn. They don't know how to get past this stuff that they're dealing with. And here's the thing. You have streams of living water. You have the thing that can quench the thirst in their soul if you care enough to share it with them.
We must be people that let the streams of living water flow through us to this world. Because the world is looking for something different because their reality looks really bleak right now. But until they find that living water, they're going to keep going to different wells and they will forever be disappointed. But church, you can stop that. It's not that you do something, but it's the power of the Spirit, God's holiness through you. And through God's holiness, we can change the world. To the one that is suffering from the crippling power of addiction and sin in their life, you have streams of living water. To the person that feels like they have no worth or no significance, that they are just another statistic in this natural world, you have streams of living water. To the person that is missing that loved one that they have lived their whole life with, you have streams of living water. And we can't take that lightly. We must partner with Jesus in bringing in his upside down kingdom that turns death into life, that turns sickness into healing, and that reverses the curse forevermore. Because God's holiness, the moment it touches evil, can't help but eradicate it and bring new life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we know that there is no one like you. There is none beside you. There is no one that can even come close to your splendor and your glory and your majesty. And we know that the things that we turn to, the things that we make idols of, the gods of our life are never going to satisfy us. Sometimes it's hard getting out of that idolatry. But I pray that you just remove it. You cut out the roots of us wanting to turn to something else and trying to find fulfillment in them because we know we cannot find them. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. And help us to have vision only for you. Help our desire to only be to glorify you and lift you up. And Lord, as we reflect that we are image bearers of the great I am. I pray that you help us to live a life that is worthy of the name that you have attached to us. I pray that you help us be a beacon of holiness and that when people see us, they can't help but glorify you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.